I'm David M. Drucker with the Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024, a ricochet podcast and a companion to my book, just out from 12 books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. On this episode, Rich Lowry, editor of National Review. You know, it was to, to stop a particular candidate for the Republican nomination, which we had done before. And you know, we did it with McCain in 2000 when he was surging. We did it with Newt. People tend to forget, you know, Newt had a big surge in 2012. We came out with an anti-Newt cover. So going after a particular candidate who we think would be um, a mistake for the party is not was not Newt. If there is an intellectual Bible in Republican politics, one that spanned generations, one that survived Donald Trump, it would have to be National Review. Throughout the former president's term, National Review is where you went for the panoply of thought and opinion coursing through the Republican Party. Pro-Trump, never Trump, maybe Trump, skeptical Trump, you get the picture. And so I was thinking, who better among the conservative intelligentsia to speak about Donald Trump's impact on the Republican Party and the shadow he still casts than Rich Lowry. As editor of the National Review, he has presided over it all. And now, my conversation with Rich Lowry. Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, thanks for dropping by in Trump's shadow, the battle for 2024. Hey, I, I've been in Trump's shadow for about five years, David. So it's it's nothing new for me. <laughs> yeah, well, at least we can av- at least we avoid the sunburn, I suppose. <laughs> hey, uh, let's go back in time and talk about the stop Trump issue of National Review. And I've always wanted to ask you about this because I mention it in my book, "In Trump's Shadow: The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP." That had to really be bizarre for you organizing a special issue to try and put a stop to the Republican Party's leading candidate for president. I've always wanted to ask you about that experience. Yeah, so we thought, you know, Trump would would fade the way a lot of people did, you know, kind of summer phenomenon. And and then you get into the fall. Obviously, he's not fading. Then then you get into the winter. He's not fading. So we, we worried about him on a bunch of levels and we just thought, well, what, what's the best way, way to, to try to have an impact before the thing's baked in the cake. And obviously uh, we thought Iowa, you know, it was, was a great opportunity to do that. He wasn't a natural fit for Iowa. And then usually you, you beat someone in Iowa and it, it hurts them elsewhere. And so we, we, and we also did as much as we can to kind of muster a conservatism wide statement with all sorts of people representing different organizations and different points of view. Some people who had, you know, we'd, we'd been had, had tense relationships with or weren't necessarily on board with uh, over the years. And we got whatever this was, I forget, 22, 24 authors and threw it out there in the world. And it landed with the impact of a bomb. It was, it was huge. Trump himself responded, you know, pounded on us for, for weeks, it was a big cable uh, thing. Um, and, you know, he lost, sure enough, he lost Iowa, but it just didn't, he didn't move at all in New Hampshire, 
and the, the rest is history. Not not quite. You know, there are some other inflection points in, in the nomination fight where it seemed as though there was an opportunity to to stop him. But he just he always had that that 40 percent that was like a rock with him. Um, and and that was enough to see him through. Did it feel weird? And, and I guess what I mean is, you know, look, I mean, if you're a conservative political journal, you had tension over the years with Republican leaders. Maybe they weren't conservative enough on an issue, comp- too, too compromising on another issue. But in general, there was this sense that they were the good guys and you could live with them. You just had to push them on occasion if they weren't aggressive enough. But to to decide that not just a backbencher who needed to be shut up because they had wrong opinions or or were reflecting negatively on the party but or the movement, but that someone who was poised to become the president and and here you are mobilizing, did it? It just had to feel strange, I guess, is what I'm getting at, no, and a sort it, of out of body experience. It wasn't because people. And forgive me, David. I, I think you're a little guilty of this too. Everyone is kind of misremembering that it was like after we won the nomination, we came out with this. You know, it was to to stop a particular candidate for the Republican nomination, which we had done before. You know, we did it with McCain in 2000 when he was surging. We did it with Newt. People tend to forget you know, Newt had a big surge in 2012. We came out with an with an anti-Newt cover. So going after a particular candidate who we think would be um, a mistake for the party is not was not new. Kind of the the force and magnitude of this was different. And, and I guess maybe that's what it, I'm thinking. It was of. it was divided, you know, opinion among conservatives and among our our readers. Maybe ticking a little pro. I mean, there are a lot of people who said uh, screw you, we're canceling. But a lot of people say thank God someone finally said this because in that period there was just uh, a sense of inevitability, and you're kind of an idiot if if you raise your hand and say, let's, let's try to block this guy. We're getting a nomination. And then what happened is over time, that issue got remembered as like a never Trump issue that ran, you know, during the general election at some point. And, and it just, it just wasn't. Now, obviously we were buffeted by all sorts of other Trump tensions during that, during that time and subsequent to that. But the, the issue itself as just a, an attempt to block a Republican contender for the nomination. That wasn't like, that wasn't weird or, or out of body. Fair enough. There are a lot um, of other out of body experiences that have happened, but that <laughs> in itself was not one of them. No, it's really, it's really good to get a good thorough explanation of that. Um, since then, I wanted to ask you what it's been like to run a conservative political journal in the Trump era. And what I mean by that question, Rich, is it strikes me that pre-Trump, there was a range of conservative thought and opinion. And look, sometimes I read myself differences of opinion between what I would read in National Review, what I would read in the Weekly Standard when it existed, what I would read in a, all, a whole host of conservative journals. Um, but you, you know, there was this idea generally that your readers and conservative thought leaders that they read were all generally on the same team. They were just sort of arguing different sides of the same approach to an issue, different tactics to achieving the same ends. And I feel like, and this is not true in every sense, you know, National Review still publishes a range of conservative opinion. 
The Washington Examiner, where I work, publishes a full range of conservative opinion. Uh, but I feel like now so often what I see, both in terms of what conservative readers who will bother to read this sort of stuff want, and even what I see from some conservative writers themselves, is either you're with Trump or you're against Trump. What's that been like? Yeah, so so you're right. There's this this strange phenomenon, and th th this was evident almost from the the very beginning with the the early adopters of Trump, where they 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 couldn't make or abide kind of any criticism. It's once you're with them, you had to be with them. You know, a hundred and ten percent. I've never quite figured out why that is. I think part of it reflects the guy at the top, you know, <laughs> who's very sensitive to every single criticism. I think a lot of it with high profile folks and folks are on TV, they know that if they say any discouraging word about him, they'll hear about it from him and, and from his supporters. So it, it's discouraged them from having a, a more nuanced take. But there, there was that kind of totalist sensibility almost from the beginning and even our more pro-Trump writers weren't weren't there. You know, they they would acknowledge they might minimize, but they'd acknowledge certain flaws. They might characterize them as just as just style, but still they say, okay, they, they're these stylistic flaws or these these bad tweets. But let's focus on on the stuff that's good. And and National Review historically, it's it's been welcome to me to get a reminder of this at times because th this has been a really intense and divisive period for the magazine internally, because people internally have been all over the map outside of just, you know, our, our readers and, and other folks out there. But we've had vicious fights about where to come down on Republican presidents and candidates forever, literally since the beginning. Bill Buckley didn't want to endorse Dwight Eisenhower. He didn't endorse Dwight Eisenhower. But some of the most senior figures at the magazine he respected most said, no, you got to endorse Eisenhower. But he didn't. Uh, Bill Rusher, late great publisher of, of National Review, George F. Will, storied columnist who got to start writing a column for National Review, hated each other over Agnew. And George Will was constantly criticizing Nixon and especially Agnew. He thought Agnew represented kind of this crude populism. And Bill Rusher was like, no, this, this is what we need. This is a, a key part of the Republican coalition. We shouldn't be running your columns. So it's it's been it's been like that in the Trump era, just magnified. Let's dive a little deeper into this because uh, I was thinking of a sort of phenomenon that's related to this that I had observed over the years, and my analogy isn't meant to sort of reduce the scope of what a publication like National Review does, but um, I feel like so much of the readership to conservative publications, and this would be true of liberal publications if I was talking uh, to somebody on that side, um, your readers come and they're hungry for knowledge and they're hungry for analysis and they're, they're hungry to learn about policy, but they generally approach the, the political atmosphere and their place in the world as conservatives, notwithstanding your readers on the left who just want to make sure they know what the heck is going on on the right. And, and so it's almost like the National Review is, is the game day program, right? No matter what they read, it's not really going to make them too angry. 
and they're going to like what they hear and it's going to make them feel like they have a community where they're understood. And to the extent that National Review might have been in the past critical of Republican leaders and Republican presidents for any a range of reasons, your readers would be with you and basically say, yeah, those establishment hacks, they're not getting it done. What's wrong with those people? That hasn't been the case with Trump, right? So if you uh, write a column or post an editorial that was critical of Trump for not being more aggressive on any range of issue or just saying that he was wrong, this this position he's taking isn't conservative, <laughs> they wouldn't side with you against the establishment. They'd side with him against National Review or whoever wrote that. What, what do you make of this development uh, in, in the conservative movement and in grassroots Republican politics? So I, I would say a couple things. One, when we're talking about our readers, most of them get what we do and, and understand why we do it and understand why on we had to criticize Trump on things. For instance, the, we, we're very critical of the diversion of military funding to wall funding and argue that even if it was technically legal, it was against the spirit of our constitutional system. And that's because for us, we want to have that credibility when Biden does the same kind of thing to hammer him without someone just saying, oh, this is just a hypocritical partisan position you take because it's not, you know, it's something we believe very deeply. So almost all our readers understand that. Now, the, the broader um, sort of conservative grassroots community might not understand that. And we just have a, a movement that is is riven. Um, there, there have been kind of these these tensions all along, but what what's new is that Republican Party basically during its whole existence has been uh, a, a coalition, and including uh, classical liberals, you might call them libertarians, and more kind of populist elemental conservatism. You've always had both, you always needed both, but the classical liberals were ascendant basically for the entire history of the, the party. More or less, what's happened is the populists have become <laughs> ascended, and that's yeah. and that's something different. And one of our fears when we ran that um, stop Trump issue was that uh, Trump would kind of unmoor what had been the conservative consensus, and that's a fear that ended up being correct, exaggerated in some respects, given that his his policy, most of it, eighty percent of it, was kind of just off the shelf uh, conservatism. But Trump represented something different in a way that's healthy in certain ways you know, on immigration, on, on China. I think he he was right. And the party's not going back to the way prior positions on, on those issues. And I don't think it should. But but this is this unraveling is continuing. So it wouldn't shock me if 10 years from now or maybe sooner, the Republican consensus is that we need to tax the rich and have a very robust in, industrial policy. And that that's something that Trump didn't fully work out himself, but he would have started. And you you had, and it was sort of working backwards because usually the way movements work is you, you have someone saying, well, we got all these things wrong, guys. I'm going to start a publication. I'm going to start a think tank. We're going to make the argument for this. We're going to work it through. We're going to come up with some policies. We're going to develop personnel. And instead, Trump just came out of nowhere saying, you guys are idiots. You got it wrong on a lot of this stuff, but not having thought it through or worked it through. And this is one of the, the, I think, failures of his administration from a populist perspective. It wasn't populist enough. There weren't enough populist policies. There weren't enough populist personnel because none of the none of the these prior spade work had happened. So now we sort of see it happening after the fact. 
uh, post-Trump's presence. We saw it during, but now especially post, which I, I think maybe a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't have expected. So what what is consensus conservatism? Is there a consensus conservatism? All that is very much um, in doubt and up in the air. And there is a uh, open and some um, sometimes open, certainly subterranean civil war going on over that, those questions. Um, I wanted to ask you how that's been for you and your, your comments sort of dovetail into where I was headed next. Um, not to make too big of a deal out of it, but look, you know, for years I would watch you on Fox news and you, you fit within the consensus sort of realm of conservative thought and you had a home there. And I remember after you left Fox, you were on CNN for a bit. Um, and it always seemed like they were trying to get you to beat up on Republicans, beat up on Republicans for not bashing Trump. Uh, beat up on Republicans for not disavowing their principles because of Trump. And so that wasn't very comfortable either. But I, I just wanted to say, you know, for somebody who had existed and rather successfully, um, not that you're still not, but 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 with your place within this world for so long, how has it been given that you're willing to call things out when you don't like them, you agree when you think they're good, meaning you basically satisfy nobody all of the time. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's a pretty good statement. You know, I, I was, I was used to not being able to satisfy everyone, but at times it's, it's felt as though national review and myself haven't been able to satisfy anyone. I, that's an exaggeration. Um, but I mean, my attitude is just, I, I, I got to call them the way I see them. I, I would never express contempt for Trump supporters. I would, um, always want to check the the premises and the facts on the basis of any anti-trump hysteria oftentimes they were they were wrong and i'm i'm a conservative even if i dislike things that trump does and i'm going to call them out so that's always where i was and you know like cnn they i explained to them you know you're probably not going to like what i say most of the time you know i'm not uh, not max boot I'm not Michael Steele, you know, who's at, at MSNBC now. And they're, they're, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's fine, it's fine. But it's not fine. They, they wanted people to go on and fit a particular niche and a particular role. And I, I just wasn't going to do it. Um, so I, I wasn't going to jettison uh, really important policy goals that, that we have plugged for for decades just because Donald Trump was supporting them and making them happen. That was a good thing. That was an upside uh, to Trump. Now, the, the other side of the ledger is I, I'm not going to jettison, you know, things we've said and standards we've had forever just because Donald Trump's violating them and I feel a need to get to get on board. So, um, I mean, basically our attitude has been uh, let the chips fall where they may. We're, we're going to speak the truth. We're going to stand up for what we think is right. Sometimes people are going to like it. Sometimes they're not. But at the end of the day, this is this is National Review's role. We can't be chasing uh, the rabbit around the race course the way some other people do, because one, we're not going to be as good as chasing the rabbit uh, as as other people are, and um, two, it's just not it's not a role. And if if that's what we're going to do, there's no need to have a National Review. Um, so, the, the, one of the strengths of our publication is we have this very strong sense of what our institution is and what we're what we're about from from me down to the the intern who's you know a second year at Cornell or something they just know what what 
what NR, NR's place in the world is. And we're going to occupy that place and do the best job we can representing what we want to represent. And if uh, you know, it means you don't get this TV contract or you get this TV contract that you're not happy with, you know, and eventually you lose that TV contract too. That's just the price, the price of doing business. Let's talk about Trump for a moment. You know, Rich, he's always struck me as a, a very simple man, but a complicated political figure. Wanted to ask you first what you were expecting from from him at the outset, not before the nomination. So he wins the nomination, he wins the presidency. What were you expecting? I was expecting. I was in some respects too optimistic, and others too pessimistic. So too optimistic. I thought he'd really go out of his way to a greater extent to try to conform to the role of the presidency. And if he had done that, he might be president at, as we speak. He, um, I think that the fact that he didn't do that would probably hurt him most and um, is a big reason he was defeated. But if you remember that initial meeting he had with Obama when, when Trump visited the White House, and he was sitting with Obama in the Oval Office and seemed almost abashed. You know, there's no such thing as an abashed Donald Trump, but he seemed a little abashed, almost nervous. And you're like, okay, the weight of this is is on him. You know, he didn't expect to win, um, and but he realizes that he's now the leader of the free world, and this is like a big deal. Um, but he but he immediately reverted, you know, to to all his worst worst habits. So I thought there'd be more effort there. He, he, in certain respects, he didn't even try. Whereas too pessimistic as I thought he would be, and he was all over the map on, on certain things, but um, that he'd be totally unreliable on his conservative promises. And especially on pro-life stuff and on judges, he was just a complete rock, a rock. And I'm happy to say it. And I was delighted it happened. And the, the you know the, he he was like a generational achievement on the on the courts the you know tax reform the deregulation some of the deregulation might not stick given the stuff's just reversed if if you lose but the, those are those are big deals those those were welcome and you know the foreign policy although you know there's some rocky moments he it, it, was, it was basically um, you know fairly responsible avoided the worst you know. Perhaps the, the so-called Taliban peace deal was the worst thing he did. Um, so, so that was a, that was a pleasant, a pleasant surprise. And I feel like that's why, because um, you were mentioning the 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 achievements on the conservative side of the ledger, why it can be so difficult for Republican voters who are skeptical of him or who just didn't like the way he acted. And let's face it, he just acted the way he acted, and he still acts the same, right? But here's somebody who. Um, as you said, on the issue of abortion was far different than the life he lived. Um, and on uh, gun rights was rock solid. And look, he passes a, an enormous tax cut. Um, he gets a corporate tax cut passed through that Republicans had wanted for decades. Um, and, you know, we could go down the line here. Is, is that part of what made it so, I mean, re- voters are voters, but if you're a Republican in Congress and you're pulling your hair out at his tweets, but then, you know, an hour later, he's pulling the U.S. out of the Iran deal, moving the embassy to Jerusalem and, and taking out Soleimani. And, and then, you know, from a fiscal standpoint, while not perfect, 
tax cuts and DREG and all of that, is that what makes it so hard to just say, you know, because you act like a jerk, we, sh- we shouldn't support you? Well, a lot of congressmen just made made the calculation, right? Is um, uh, good things going to happen? Well, well, one, he's president, and that's not going to change. He's just president of the United States. And this, for me, helped cha- change my attitudes in some respects. It's just different when we were talking about that the stop Trump issue against Trump issue. It's just different when he's one of 16 Republicans, and pretty much any of those Republicans would be a great president, uh, you think, or a better president. And if he's president of the United States, he's going to be president of the United States for four years. You, know, you really have to deal with it. <laughs> you know, there, there's no alternative. And so I think that changed a lot of attitudes among people. And then they also just realized, um, you know, frankly, they're scared of their voters. Their voters are just very pro-Trump, very vocal. They'd hear about it if they commented on a, a tweet. So why comment on the tweet if you don't have to? R- run, scurry down the, ha- the hallway as fast as you can. And another element of this is that if you popped up your head and criticized something, Trump might come after you. And it used to be, you know, 40 years ago, okay, maybe an incumbent president has a lot of influence. Maybe he can destroy you if he wants to, but how he's going to destroy you is maybe by, you know, being supportive of a primary opponent in 18 months and loaning his consultant and his fundraising network to this primary opponent. And maybe this primary opponent will mount a serious challenge. But Trump could hurt you immediately. I mean, he, he could he could dent your career with one tweet, you know, instantly. And, and that was something different. And I think had a deterrent effect on people criticizing him. So I, I, I thought like McConnell, for his purposes, got it right. You know, no one was ever going to mistake him for a Trumpist. When the, the provocations were severe, he would say, no, th- this is wrong. The president shouldn't have said this, shouldn't do this. I hope he rethinks it. But broadly worked to achieve conservative goals and his goals. So it would have been idiotic for McConnell, as some people are pushing him to, like in a morning Joe, to criticize Trump every day, uh, totally blow up the relationship, maybe not be majority leader anymore, but even if he were majority leader, um, make it much harder to get all these goals that McConnell has worked for for 40 or 50 years. So I also kind of understand Lindsey Graham. You know, he saw Rand Paul would, would play golf with Trump and whisper in Trump's ear, and tr- try to play on the isolationist side of Trump. So Lindsey Graham's like, why, why am I going to let my foreign policy adversary do that? I'm going to play the same game. But I think where Lin- Lindsey kind of the balance was off, um, you know, for my purposes, got way too much in the tank. But then again, you know, these guys are practical politicians. So Lindsey knows um, he used to have to worry about winning general elections in South Carolina. And now I had to really win- worry about winning a primary against a, a Trumpist uh, opponent potentially. And everything he did was with an eye to that. And for his purposes, it works. You know, he wins the primary. He has a moment or two of the general election seems closer like it, than it's ever been in the past, but still he prevails and he's still a senator. That was ultimately the goal. What have you made of other conservative opinion leaders uh, and writers like you who began very skeptical of Trump and um, by the end of his term were anything but skeptical of Trump and did not seem to have an issue with his conduct, right? So when you mm-hmm. talk about his his good points and his bad points, you make a point of saying, look, he was a rock on abortion. I am pleased, but he did these other things I don't like, so I say so. Uh, but there was definitely a falling off over time yeah. where 
the initial concern um, just sort of disappeared among many. Yeah. What if you make it? Yeah. Of that? I, you know, it's, it's, we could go case by case, which I don't want to do because I, I don't want And I don't want to put you in that position, but, as a, but broadly speaking, you're actually in that world. And I've talked to a lot of uh, voters who granted aren't Republicans, but they, what, what they will tell me is, you know, Normally, even if I disagreed with conservative X, these were principled thought leaders. They would say it in a different way. These were principled writers, and I understood we disagreed. But hey, they were consistent. They don't seem consistent to me anymore. Why is it that because of Trump, they don't seem consistent anymore? And so I thought I, I've just always I, I hear that a lot, and I'm curious how you react to that sort of assessment. Granted, from non-conservatives. Yeah. So it, 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 for me, it's not that difficult. All of life is complicated. Uh, you know, few things in life are a hundred percent. So, um, it, it's, it's not hard to it, admit that the complexities to Trump thing, but that's not always what people want to hear. And, um, it, it's easier to just, um, uh, fall into, okay, uh, if I'm with them, I got to be with them a hundred percent. And, I think so, some people fell prey to that, and there's, you know, there there are market incentives. Um, you, you know, depending on what outlet you're you're uh, write, writing for or, or what uh, what exactly you're you're doing, there is um, if you're just 100% unadulterated and never make any what I would consider the necessary concessions, you're going to be rewarded, you know, at least at the margins, um, because you're never going to be telling anyone things they don't want to hear. And that, by the way, it's a, it's a hard thing. You know, I, I don't like doing it. There's certain things we've written or I've written. I know people are going to hate. And, and, uh, and, and there's, there's a view out there among some people. Oh, well, this is great. You know, he, he's doing this because he, he uh, wants to go to the proverbial Georgetown cocktail party and be rewarded. Well, I don't go to Georgetown cocktail parties. And the people I'm going to hear about complaining, I really care about. You know, they're my people, they're my tribe, they're fellow conservatives. I don't want to be upsetting them. So it, it, um, it, it, it I, I understand how the path of, of least resistance is just not acknowledging the nuance, although there's pl plenty of nuance to this one. By the way, if you ever get an invite to a Georgetown cocktail party, send it to me because I've always wanted to go to one and I've <laughs> never been to one. Um, hey, should it matter how a president acts? Like, just divorce from Trump for a minute, although it's hard to do. I mean, we could go back in time and talk about Bill Clinton's um, conduct in the Oval Office. Should these things matter? Or if you're a serious policy person or care about the direction of the country, then the only thing that matters should be the concrete policies, legislation, how you're handling a foreign policy, because the other stuff's a sideshow. Yeah, you know, I, I I grappled with this. I occasionally had. I always thought it mattered. I occasionally had these heretical thoughts. Maybe it doesn't matter as much as much as I thought. Did it really? You know, time of impeachment of Bill Clinton, conservatives were all well. You know, uh, we're we're going to descend into Caligula because the president has done this. That you know that didn't happen. <laughs> it was embarrassing, but the the actual practical effect of it of what, what he did and learning what he did what was limited. So I occasionally had those thoughts, but then at the, the end of the day, I thought it, it is coarsening and that's bad for our, our political culture. May not, may not be able to point to it a direct harm, 
Um, but with Trump, it was more than just style. It was, a, it was some, some deep character flaws. And basically for four years, we tiptoed through the raindrops of those character flaws. So by the end, I was like, okay, you know, maybe they, they didn't matter that much. Then he loses, then he won't concede. Then, then he, he goes down this, this rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and et cetera, and actually affirmatively tries to overturn the uh, election. And that, that was a huge deal. And that was entirely character, entirely pride, entirely just not being willing to take the blow to his ego of losing, which is huge blow. It's crushing. I mean, it's, none of us have any idea what's, what, what that's like. But throughout the nation's history, people have been willing to swallow it, even when they thought they were dealt with um, un unfairly in important respects. And that was a character thing. And that really mattered. So at the end of the day, yes, it does matter. Of Trump, you wrote in your May 12th Politico magazine column, quote, he connected with his voters at a cultural level much deeper than any of his policies, creating an enduring bond with Republicans who view him as a champion of their way of life. His voters still think he's the only one in the GOP who truly gets the threat from the left and the only one willing to fight for the ferocity, fight with the ferocity that's called for, unquote. Now, I'll add that his relationship with the base and with Republicans generally, which I think stretches either beyond the base or the base is just much bigger than we discuss it as, was so big that when he claimed the election was stolen, they either believed him or felt he was onto something enough that he, they were okay with it. And even when the Capitol was overrun by his grassroots supporters, as ham-handed as it was, the intent there was to stop the, the election and reset the results does it say anything about the party and the conservative movement that this was generally okay yeah i mean it just it just goes to the, the power trump has as a political figure i wouldn't have thought it was possible uh, you know i i thought this was always a huge downside of him getting into politics that he'd lose and prestige and image reputation matters so much to them, him, he wouldn't be able to handle it. And, he, and here it was, he lost, he lost in the biggest stage imaginable and wiggled his way out of it because he was able to convince people that he didn't really lose. And, and that it, it has to do with um, his weird, almost magical political power. It also has to do with if fears along these lines that conservatives have always had, but they always been mostly sub subterranean and kind of Trump brought him out. And three ha has to do with some legitimate concerns about how the election was conducted. I don't think that means in any way it was stolen, but processes and norms were thrown out and you had, you know, everyone cites understandably Pennsylvania where you had the Supreme court state Supreme court rewriting the rules uh, at, at the end and legitimate concerns about those, those things. And you, and you bring them all together and you get this, what, what I think is basically a toxic stew. And another ingredient is that in 2016, the other side basically didn't accept the results. So a lot of people, well, why, why are we going to be suckers and say their win is legitimate when they, they fought against Trump's win for years, which is true and did happen and was outrageous. So you put that all together and, and, and you get this, uh, this, this mood in, in the party and continued uh, pull and influence that, that Trump has. There was about, David, I would say like, a two or three day period after January 6th when people are genuinely shocked. And it reminded me a little bit of the Access Hollywood tape when everyone's like, okay, that's it. It's over for Trump. 
and we got to move on to the next thing. And then Republican voters are, nope, no, you're not moving on. And I think that's the it's exact same thing happened, and that's where we are now. Do you have a good sense of how uh, conservatives got here where this sort of thing that may have bothered them 20 years ago or 40 years ago doesn't bother them today? I mean, I've talked to some Republicans or conservatives, and they'll say the Republican establishment was so milquetoast for so long that it left the base, it left Republicans generally hungry for somebody like Trump. Yeah. You know, you've heard the opinions from the left where they just feel like there's been a complete breakdown in terms of the party and its ability to be a serious conservative party. That's their opinion. How do you think uh, Republican voters arrived here to the point where none of this bothered them and they thought it might have been warranted to begin with? Yeah, I was, I've been wondering this, the same thing myself. And in fact, it might've been from the, the column you, you read a couple lines from, I was calling around just, what do, what do you think? Why, why does he still have this, this grip? And a friend of mine who's been conservative politics for three decades or more said, people he talks to, the breaking point was the Mitt Romney, Barack Obama foreign policy debate where Candy Crowley stepped in when, when Romney had Obama on the ropes falsely said Romney had something wrong and Romney just sort of took it. And that, that was meant he kind of lost, lost that debate. And obviously subsequently went on to lose the election. And that's when that moment really broke a lot of people and like, never again, we're, we're not going to be polite ever again. We're not going to be civil ever again. We need to fight with a, 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 the ferocity of a caged animal. And that was a huge part of the appeal of Trump. And I think, you know, a lot of this stuff, the stolen election is seen through that prism. So, all right, maybe, maybe it's taken a little too far. Maybe it wasn't really stolen. There's just some things uh, that, that were uh, uh, processes that were untoward, but at least he's fighting. At least he's not just going to take it. And I, I think that's a huge element of, of the appeal. And it's just hard to separate when people say the, the election is stolen. Do they really, really think it was stolen or are they identifying themselves with this combative attitude that they think is is necessary in current circumstances, and and the and the bigger environment around this is it's just a, this apocalyptic worldview that the, the country is about to be destroyed, and uh, while I think some people are are overly dire, that there there are major trends that are deeply disturbing. So I, I understand that impulse. As we close out our conversation, I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions about um, conservative opinion journalism and uh, conservative journalism in general. Um, you know, it strikes me we're both old enough to remember a time when there were three networks and you had to wait for National Review to come in the mail if you wanted to get something else. Then there was talk radio, but there was talk radio and three networks and National Review and maybe a few other things. There is now a range of platforms uh, from which conservatives can um, opine and report and cover the stories and shine a light on topics that they feel are getting short shrift in you know the so-called mainstream media. And, and a lot of times they have a point. I mean, there are certain things that the major outlets aren't going to cover, or they're not going to cover the, the way conservatives believe they should be covered. But what I find interesting, uh, Rich, is that in the last, and this I really feel like predates Trump, but it's definitely in the Trump era become so much more prevalent, is the story for, from a 
conservative journalist complaining that a mainstream journalist isn't covering the story that the mainstream journalist wants covered rather than just covering the story. Now, you guys at National Review do a pretty good job. You've got a, a, always had a little sta- some, a stable of reporters that will actually cover stories. But is this just because it's popular and consumed? Because I feel like if you have a platform and you're a journalist, just go cover the stories that you think are missing. Yeah. So a couple things. One, we we wouldn't, don't want to go back, obviously, to the 1970s or whatever it is. We have three broadcast networks. That that was not a good system. You know, the technology limited the flow of information. Um, there are some alternatives, but not not a lot. So it's good that we've had the small D democratic profusion of sources. And it's really a golden age of conservative journalism. National Review is still here. You guys are are here. The Daily Wire, you know, print publications. You have one commentary, Claremont Review of Books. I mean, there's just it's there's so much good conservative journalism to consume. Now, the downside is that there's also a lot of schlock to consume, <laughs> and any kind of gatekeeper role ha- has almost gone away. So. Milo Yiannopoulos, you know, this kind of grifter associated with Breitbart, who was a big deal several years ago. We didn't publish him. We never said a kind word about him. We criticized him all the time. And it, and 40 years ago, we just wouldn't have published him. The American Spectator wouldn't have published him. And that'd be it. No one would hear of him. Maybe have, you know, a newsletter somewhere that he published in his basement, <laughs> try to send around to people. But with social media, he, he could go around all the established institutions. And that was a bad thing. And it turned out Jack Dorsey had more control over whether Milo is a conservative voice than any established conservative institution did because he's kicked off Twitter and you never hear of him again, basically. So that that's a downside. And then I think it the, to circle around to your specific question, the media criticism is good. And there, there is a role of just saying, well, this mainstream reporter should, should, is not covering the story that's important. Why, why is he or, he or she not doing that? But you also want to have the capability to do the reporting yourself. And, and I would say that this is something where we've, we've just been, as a movement, have been weak. But I think we're stronger than we have been. You know, you guys do a, a ton of reporting. We, we do some. The Washington Free Beacon does tremendous work. Uh, the Daily Caller uh, you know, it can be a mixed bag, but they, they've done some really important stuff. So I think there's more of a capability of conservatives to go out and report about these stories and make them a thing than than ever before. But you're right, that's that's still kind of a, uh, it's, it's a minority uh, slice of, of what all, all of us are doing at the end of the day. And finally, Rich, I just wanted to ask you about the conservative movement's rejection of elites or so-called elites. Uh, You know, everybody likes to tell the story of um, William F. Buckley and how he took care of the Birchers. But there was a time when the party, the Republican Party, and the movement embraced elite and expert thought and opinion, didn't swallow every piece of it, but didn't have such disdain for it. But there is clearly a, even conservative elites write stories haranguing conservative elites. Right. It's almost like this great self-loathing, self-hating community, unless they just don't count themselves among the bad elites. Um, and it, look, it's always been good politics in America to bash Washington and bash the elites. And it's an American true tradition, and it's kind of a good one. But particularly on the right at the moment, the worst thing you can be 
tarred with is being deemed a so-called elite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did we end up here? Well, this has always been, as you point out, a feature of conservatism and you know bill buckley was railing against the elite <laughs> the 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 liberal elite that he thought was dominant and kind of imposing this ideological monoculture on the the country so it just it goes again to populism has always been part of post-war american conservatism and wouldn't have had any of its successes without it and even kind of anti-populist you know john mccain at the end had a huge element of populism as, as part of their their own appeal, but kind of the 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 balance has shifted where the populism is predominant, and the, there are reasons why people hate the elite um, and, and hate government by experts. You know, they often don't know as much as they they think they do. They're high handed, kind of contemptuous of their their own country in certain respects, but. You, you need to be discerning at the end of the day and just not everyone who has a title or knows something should be um, treated with suspicion or contempt just out of out of the box. And the way the way I look at this is sort of similar to uh, the way I look at media coverage. I don't take any media story for granted. I don't automatically assume every single one is false and wrong and has to be rejected because if you take that attitude, you're going to be wrong about half the time because the because the, the media is is wrong about half the time roughly, but is right about half the time. But you have to be discerning and figure it out your, yourself. And the, the same is true almost of every. We've seen this during the pandemic. You know, every part of our national life, even if it involves quote unquote science or quote unquote science, you just can't take anything for granted. And and you got to uh, do do some due diligence and figure it out for your own. And then just the last point. I always go back on on this theme to Yuval Levin's last book that he wrote about institutions. He said one of the problems with our country, one of the problems with the, the reputation uh, of our institutions is everyone treats themselves, considers themselves an outsider, even if they're insiders. And we actually need good insiders who know what they're doing and can run and build institutions. Um, but everyone wants to consider themselves an outsider, even if they are running institutions. And, and Trump was just a huge example of this. He was president of the United States. No one gets more inside than the president of the United States. But he was tweeting as though someone else was president and this whole government was going on that he had nothing to do with. And, and that, that really exemplifies the, this attitude that's not just on, on the, the right, although um, it's prevalent on the right. You, you also see it on the, the left uh, as well. And institutions are important. Uh, they're good. They're part of the pillars of, of our national strength. So by all means, let's, let's be skeptical of elites and, and so-called expert opinion, but not reject uh, expertise and institutions out of hand. Rich Lowry is the editor of National Review. Rich, thank you very much. Hey, David, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Brian Johnson is the producer of this episode of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP is available for purchase wherever books are sold. On a daily basis, you can catch my work online at www.WashingtonExaminer.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Ricochet. Join the conversation.